Good morning. Welcome to CBC. It's great to have everybody out this morning on a beautiful summer morning still. This is not yet fall, just so you're aware of that. Um, two of Exodus. I'll be reading in the English Standard Version this morning. Exodus 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. As the worship team comes, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for the sunshine, for the warmth. I thank you for your creation around us and this place that you have put us. 
thank you that you are the maker of heavens and earth, that you have made such a beautiful place for us to live. And thank you that you are a God that we can call on in our time of need. Thank you for hearing us and answering us. In your name, amen. So clearly the Kapilovs have some extra time at our house. And I think the reason we have extra time, or at least had a lot of extra time over the summer, is we canceled our TV and internet. I know. Gasp. That's how I felt. But we really felt like... I planned that. We really felt like it was necessary for our family, and I'm so glad that we did. We had so much extra time this summer to do stuff. Our kids and myself weren't just turning on a screen every time there was a blank moment in our schedule. And one of the things that my children took to doing uh, was, was playing church. Now, before any of you think too happy of thoughts about my family on this, let me just say that when I say the Kapiloffs played church, it's like when you hear about a family who stops arguing just for the minute to take the picture and post it to Facebook and be like, ta-da, here's my wonderful family, when it's really not it's really not them. So when I say we're playing church, like we just interrupted the bickering for a moment to play church. And uh, so Lori and I are upstairs in our, in our kitchen, and the children are downstairs playing church. And Simon says, I get to be dad and give the sermon. And then Talia says, well, I get to be mom and tell dad everything he did wrong when he was, when he was done. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I had a good chuckle and said, see, and... Uh, also, my wife's not here today, so I'm going to be referring to her more than normal. Um, so at the end of the sermon, and I, I, I didn't see it, so the motions I'm, I'm sort of assuming happen. But Simon comes up. He says, please stand for the resurrection. Rest in peace. Enjoy the munchkins. And then my wife said, see, I told you they don't get out of Sunday what you think they do when you, <laughs> when you preach. And so it made me think, as I was preparing for this sermon, like, what is it that the elders hope that you all leave with? So let me be very clear about this series, uh, not only to my children, but also to all of you. Uh, why are we studying Exodus? It happened like 4,000 years ago. And... We don't have a pharaoh. We have a Trump. We don't live in ancient Egypt. We live in 21st century America. And I think that it would be very easy to make the case that we are not at all like them. But I think that we're actually a lot like them. Uh, and this is really important. In my opinion, Exodus is the book of the Old Testament. In Exodus, we get to know God and his long-term plan for his people. And the book of Exodus really concludes with the death and resurrection of Jesus. The ancient Israelites suffer from the same kinds of things that we suffer from. They suffered from a lack of faith. They suffered from obstinance, a short memory, a desire to be physically taken care of at the expense of the spiritual. The world around them was cruel and affected them negatively. I think in this series, we're actually going to see a 4,000-year-old version of us. We're going to be looking at the character of God in this series, in particular, his activity and promises to help save his people. 
we see God's sovereignty over suffering. And additionally, we see how God reacts to the cry and the suffering around him. So our story starts with a promise that God made to Abraham. God tells Abraham in the book of Genesis that his family is going to be a blessing to the entire world. And can you imagine that being your job description? Right? So maybe you graduate from school and the charge is take care of the entire world. I'm 41 and I can barely take care of myself most days. So I can only imagine how Abraham and his descendants thought about that charge. It's a big plan to bless the world, and it requires a people who are willing to trust God and do what's right. And unfortunately, none of Abraham's descendants were able to do that, or even really close. Most times, they also couldn't take care of themselves. And so the 400 years between when Genesis ends and when Exodus starts, and then the next almost 100 years it took the Israelites uh, from when chapter 1 starts to when they enter the promised land, is about God building that nation to be ready to take that charge. Trusting God with their lives, with families, with our work is not easy. And it really doesn't come naturally and doesn't to us and it didn't to Moses and the Israelites. So this sermon today is about the early stages of this plan and how God, both in his character and his actions, points towards salvation not only for his people, not only for Moses, but everybody else. So today I have three lopsided points. The first half of the sermon is going to be on how God plans for us. And then the rest of the morning will be on how God plans in spite of us and that God knows us. So if the first one seems long, don't worry about it. I promise you we'll all be home for the football game at 415. So God plans for us. God plans in spite of us. And God knows us. Let's pray. God, you know how badly I need you this morning. God, thank you for the prayers of the many that got me through this week. Thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit that I feel was clearly with me as this was written. God, thank you for each and every person here. God, may you bless us today. May your Holy Spirit Help us to ingest these words with wisdom. God, may we put your words into action this week and on our lives every day. In your name I would pray, amen. So God plans for us. What do I mean by that? So God has this ultimate destination for us and also projects to accomplish along the way. So the first aside, so God chooses Moses, right? We... We read that Pharaoh issues this decree and all the babies are going to be murdered. And Moses gets put in a basket and he's floated down the river. God chooses Moses. And it's easy to read this and not think about the thousands or maybe tens of thousands of people who had boys who God didn't save. So let me just take this first aside and talk about them for a moment. We see this problem of real evil that Greg talked about in his sermon last week. And I'm not talking like uh, life is hard because I got laid off or life is hard because my wife is hard on me or my husband isn't good to me. We're talking life is hard because they're murdering tens of thousands of our children. 
And I don't mean this to dismiss the hard things that happen to us in 21st century America. We have and we see real evil in our country and around the world today. But the way that we live is not the way, it is not the setting of this second uh, chapter of Exodus. This is evil in a way that's only been perpetrated, you know, sporadically throughout history. And so what is God's reaction to evil? Because undoubtedly we all have friends who say things like, if God was real, why would he let these things happen? And I think that the correct answer is, one, God hates evil. He doesn't want this to happen. Evil is not his choice. Evil is our choice. Evil was not God's design for the world. Evil was our design for the world. God didn't issue the decree that all these baby boys would be killed. Pharaoh issued the decree that all these baby boys would be killed. The Bible tells us that God hates evil. God puts in motion a series of events to change it. God let his people be subjected to this evil, I think primarily for two reasons. The first is, God wants to teach his people why it's wrong. And it might seem intuitive to us that it's not good to throw tens of thousands of children into the Nile River. But whatever it was, however the Hebrews felt about this, clearly it wasn't enough because it was only a few generations later that these, that the descendants of these men and women were burning their own children as offerings to the false gods of Canaan. I think that God allows us to experience evil because he doesn't want us to do it. He wants us to see how bad things are so we make different choices. And also the Bible tells us God puts in our way things that cause us to have to persevere. James chapter 1 tells us that this is the way that we mature in God. Hard things happen, we climb over them, and we move forward better, smarter, stronger than we were before. Whatever the case here, we know that God wants full redemption for all of his people. But this isn't going to happen until God is back fully in control of our world. All right, so back to God's plans for us. God puts Moses in the house of Pharaoh for a purpose. Pharaoh probably had lots of children from lots of different countries. And they would come to Pharaoh's house and they would be educated. They would learn Egyptian language and culture, religion and government. And they would do this so that they could be used as emissaries, negotiators, translators, whatever, with the nations around them. Moses definitely got a first-rate education there. As a matter of fact, he looked like an Egyptian after going to school there for some amount of years. Note that the Midian women, when they see him, they don't go back to their father and say, look, here's a Hebrew that saved us from the well. No, they say an Egyptian saved us from the well or at the well. So God is training Moses for his later work. And he's not only training Moses during this time, he's also training the entire nation. It's super important that we take our schooling, our work, growing up seriously so that we can be used by God 
fully. And I'm not just talking about students either. Adults, our training doesn't end when we turn 18 or 21 or 65. God has a purpose for us in every stage of our lives. God planned for Moses, and he's planning for you. And not only for the benefit of you, but also for the benefit of others. So this should lead us to think deeply about how we can help others and what kind of skills we need in order to do this. And listen, don't be discouraged if you're in a place in your life and you're like, what is happening to me? I feel like I live in that zone most of the time. And I'm 100% sure that Moses did not understand why he was in Pharaoh's house. And I am pretty darn sure he did not understand why it was that he was raising flocks in the desert several hundred miles away from Egypt when his people were suffering there. And note the irony of this. And I think that this is one of the ways that God demonstrates his power. So we read and we heard last week from Greg that Pharaoh feared the Hebrew people. But now a man from the very people that Pharaoh feared was being raised in his palace. A man from the very people that Pharaoh feared feared, was being fed and clothed with his resources. He was being raised to be used by Pharaoh for the benefit of the kingdom. But ultimately, this man destroys much of the the Egyptian kingdom. God has a habit of taking the weak and the helpless, of which baby Moses was certainly one, and uses them to change the world. We should also expect to be used in miraculous ways. Not all of us are going to have a story of floating into a house of royalty and leading a rebellion of two million people against the most powerful nation on earth. But don't think for a second that God hasn't given you something that's not significant to him. Maybe it's your neighbor or a roommate. Maybe it's a relative or a stranger. But we believe that all people are created equally in God's image. And so when we come in contact with people We're coming in contact with those that God loves deeply. God has charged us with the mission of spreading his love so that people can see him through us. The mission might not be to save two million people and bring them to the promised land. But when God gives us the mission of the people around us, it is no small thing. So I started this little subpoint by saying, note the irony. The funny thing about irony is it's typically, typically I think doesn't feel like irony when you're in the middle of it. To Moses, it probably felt like a great injustice. His peers had all been murdered, probably made for some pretty lonely playdates when he was two and three years old. He was separated from his parents. He was being raised by the slave owner of his family. The palace was probably a front row seat to horrible injustices that he saw on a daily or a regular basis. This weight was so heavy around Moses that the first time he's able to do something about it, he ends up murdering an Egyptian and burying him in the desert. As I said before, God has a habit and a knack for turning our weakness into strength, our greatest fears into success, and our pain into joy. And I'm not trying to convince you that every endeavor is going to end up with unceasing joyfulness. But I'm sure that when we meet God, we will understand 
his plan in its fullness and our part in it. So maybe you're sitting out there today and you've had really hard things happen to you. Don't think for a second that God isn't thinking about you and God isn't planning for you. So I think the next right question to ask is, what are we going to have to give up in order to play our part? So Moses was brought up as a rich kid in the palace. Let me read from Acts chapter 7, because it gives us a little bit fuller of a picture of Moses as he's in a sort of rich kid captivity. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is teaching some people about Jesus, and he is talking about his forefathers. So he said, starting in, where do I want to start here? Uh, Verse 20. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And by beautiful, the author means had value. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. When he was put outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and his actions. So what do we get from this? Well, God drew Moses' heart to the Israelites that were his family. And so in order for Moses to fight for them, he had to reject all of the wealth, all of the pleasure, all of the good things that he had growing up. And note here that although God plans for us, it's really our choice whether we're going to follow or not follow. So Moses was given all of this opportunity in the world, a first-class education, resources to use, a high position, And he sacrifices all of this in order to identify with the people and be faithful to God. Church, are we willing to forfeit our advantages, our privileges, our power, in order to identify with those that the world thinks are ugly? There is no doubt that Pharaoh and the Egyptians thought that the Hebrew people were undeserving, that they were undereducated, that they weren't culturally intelligent, that they were ugly. Moses gives up everything in order to identify with them. We see God protecting Moses, but that doesn't mean that it was easy, and it certainly doesn't mean that it was without pain and heartache. Life rarely comes without suffering and sacrifice. But also note that we don't have to fear God's plan. And Look at the people that we read about just in the first two chapters who are not afraid of God's plan. The midwives, at the peril of their lives, defied Pharaoh and refused to be part of his plan to murder all the children. Moses' parents refused to obey the command to kill their own son. Pharaoh's daughter defied the law. And as I said, I'm, I'm repeating this, so if you're taking notes, it's, it's the cue to write this one down. God's plan is not stress-free. It's not without hardship, and it's not without danger that is real. Fighting evil is hard. We're told in the Bible that giving our allegiance to God is going to cause hardship. But I promise that the blessings outweigh the costs. We don't have to worry about losing God's ultimate plan for us. 
God tells us that he wants his creation back. It's earth and his people. And we don't have to fear this not coming true or us being part of it. There'll be more on this on the weeks to come as we see the hardship of God's plan for Israel and courage for those that he saved. Ultimately, having faith and courage will lead us out of our Egypt. Whatever it is that we are enslaved to, whatever it is that struggles against us, God can lead us out. Number two, God's plan in spite of us. So God has this unique ability to cut through the imperfections of ourselves and others. God's plan cuts through the imperfections of ourselves and others. So we see in the first two chapters all of these things that I call impossible choices. So what's an impossible choice? Uh, this is not some sort of like technical thing. This is just something that I made up. Um, but to me, an impossible choice has three elements. One is that there's no clear answer. As a matter of fact, you might get two equally intelligent and moral people who come to a different conclusion. So that's number one. There's no clear answer. Number two, it's a choice that has very significant consequences, either for yourself or for others, no matter which way you answer. An impossible choice has consequences for yourself or others that whether you choose one or the other, those consequences are coming. And three, it's a choice that surrounds circumstances about which we could never fully appreciate unless we're the ones stuck in them. So there are several of these impossible circumstances in the first two chapters. So the first is the midwives. They are told to murder all of the newborn boys. So the midwives have three choices. If they obey, they're clearly in the wrong. I don't think any of us would debate that. If they tell Pharaoh no, they're just going to be murdered along with all of their families because that's what happens when you tell Pharaoh no. And I don't know that that's particularly helpful because then Pharaoh would just have a plan B that would be successful. Or they could lie. Now for me, I, and I, I know that because this is one of those impossible choices, there may be those of you out here who disagree. I would say the best choice would be to lie. I have friends who would totally disagree. And they would say, you know what, Chris? It is not for you to take that in your hands. Do what God tells you to do is right. And whatever Pharaoh does, he does. And if you and your family die as a result, then you can count yourselves amongst the martyrs. We're told here that the midwives do lie and that God blesses them for it. But a difficult choice. Another one is Moses' parents putting them in a basket to save the lives of the rest of the family. So when they had this boy, they could have done a couple of things. They could have kept him and hid him. But if they ever got found out, undoubtedly Pharaoh would have had their entire family executed. They could have tried to run out of Egypt and escape. But again, if they were caught, they would have had their entire family executed. Or they could put him in a basket and hope for the best. It's easy for us to read these verses and be like, wow, what a great idea. Right? It clearly worked. But imagine if I came to you today and I was like, 
Well, you know, Lori and I had a fourth kid, and we weren't really feeling it, so we left him up in the woods because I have faith that God's going to take care of the little child. You'd all think I'm crazy, and you'd be right. (laughs) Imagine the hard choice to put your child in a basket. If the basket tips over, it's, it's done. And you're going to float him to the palace of somebody who has just ordered the death of tens of thousands of, his, of those people. An impossible choice. So Moses comes out of the palace one day and he sees an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew. He could have done a couple of things. He could have gone and thrown his body in front of it. Could have been like, hey, you're not going to kill him unless you get through me. But he doesn't do that. He could have tried to reason with him. He doesn't try to do that. He just kills him and buries his body in the sand. The Bible doesn't really tell us what God thinks of his choice. But I would say if you read the things that Jesus says, it's hardly turning the other cheek. And how about his escapade with the shepherds? So there's this dispute about who's first at the drinking fountain. Moses drives him away. It's easy for us to be like, go, Moses. What if one of the shepherds had taken out a sword, escalated the situation, and one of them was killed? For what, a spot in line? So why do we have these impossible choices to make in life? Because we have these things, too. We have them because our world is so badly broken that sometimes our choices have no answer where everybody wins. We have these impossible choices primarily because of us. But through all of these impossible choices, we see God's plan still in motion, still moving towards maturing his people and the maturing of Moses. Because things go wrong. Choices aren't made in a vacuum, and our choices or not choosing to act, these things have real consequences. There's not always a way out that's tidy. Tyler spoke a few weeks ago about the hard choice that Naaman had. He goes to Elisha, sees the power of God, and then says, what do I do when I get home and the king brings me to his priest in the temple of this false god? What do I do? And Elisha doesn't give a clear answer, probably because it's one of these impossible choices. But church, here, I think, is our way out of it. We need to ask ourselves the question, what's our foundation? Are we selfish or are we self-giving? Are we greedy for money or are we willing to give it away? Are we willing to sacrifice or do we just want to take care of ourselves? Do we know God's character through study and accountability? These are the things that will help us make those wise choices. So at the end of one of these impossible choices, ends up with Moses running away. And he questions, Moses questions what on earth is happening. See, Moses thinks that he's going to lead these people out of Egypt. And he thinks, well, let me read again from Acts chapter 7. When he was 40 years old, 
he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to the rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. The next day he showed up and while they were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them peacefully saying, men, you are brothers. Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed Moses aside and said, don't judge me. He didn't really say that. He said, who appointed you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled and became an exile in the land of Midian. So Moses thinks that he is going to be at the center of the liberation of these people. And he is, but not the way he thinks he is. The Hebrews aren't ready yet for God's plan, and Moses isn't ready yet to lead the people out. Moses' assumption that as soon as he leads them, it's going to happen is wrong. Moses can't do anything without God. Moses on his own is not enough. So the Hebrew gives Moses the line, in essence, don't judge me. If I want to beat this guy up, who are you to stop me? The man is clearly not ready to see or succumb to God's brand of peace. And I think that this story was put in here not to give us a small snippet of one person amongst a population of two million Hebrews, but to tell us generally that the Hebrews were not yet ready for God. You know, you'd think with all their their babies being murdered, there'd be a little bit more national unity in how they treated each other, but clearly that was not the case. Moses murders this man because he thinks he's going to be at the center of their liberation, when in actuality, only God is at the center of their liberation. You know what God really wants from us? It's not to lead the rebellion. God wants our brokenness, and God wants our humility. And when we give God those things, God puts us in place to lead his kingdom. Lastly, God knows us. I believe firmly that there are no extra words in Scripture. And there are also no missing words in Scripture. So our English version sometimes does this. because we're not reading in the original language. But a few things that I want us to see uh, at the end of chapter 2. The author uses four words to show the plea to God. Now, unfortunately, two of them get translated into the word cry. but uses it twice. In Hebrew, there's, it's actually two different words. But four different words. It says that the Hebrews groaned, that they cried out, that there was a cry for help, and that it ascended to God. Four ways the Hebrews let God know how they were feeling and how they were doing. In the next sentence, God responds with four words that are used to show how he heard his people. It says, and each time it starts with the word God, God heard their groaning. God remembered his promise. God saw them. God knew them. They groaned, they cried out, 
There was a cry for help. They ascended to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his promise. He saw them and he knew them. The author uses this repetition to show that it's more than just information that's known by God. The incorrect interpretation would be that God forgot his promise and now he remembered. That's not what the author's trying to say. This is far more than just information. This is showing God's love for his people and the author trying to explain it as best that he possibly can. And you might be out there thinking today, wait a minute, like, does God really know the pain of these people? Does God really know the pain that's in my life? And let me assure you that he does. Jesus lived it. Jesus fully knows injustice when he was convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. He fully knows physical pain when he was tortured and then crucified. Jesus knows betrayal. He knows hunger and thirst. God knows our pain every bit as much as we know our pain. God's plan for us, I think, has two parts. The first part is here in our daily lives. Here in our daily lives, we drive God's kingdom forward. We try to make earth look more like heaven. This is part of God's plan for us and for our world. God equips us. He plans our circumstances. He gives us opportunities to learn and grow, often through trial. He plans good things for us to do. He plants us in places where we can impact those around us. Now, our part of this is hampered by evil. It's squished by people everywhere. And it's defeated sometimes by us. But God can redeem anything. Nothing any of us has done can keep us from doing God's will today. When I say God, drive God's kingdom forward, I mean doing real work for the betterment of those around us. Being a consumer here at church on Sundays, being a part of a small group where you're surrounded by peers that you enjoy spending time with, is really not pushing God's kingdom forward. It's good to come to church, and it's good to be part of a small group. But pushing God's kingdom forward is hard work that requires us to sacrifice it requires us to be around people that need real help. It requires that we give ourselves for the benefit of others. And let me just say, what I, what I just said sort of makes it sound like a lot of work. And sometimes it is a lot of work. But I would say that many of the most meaningful parts of my life are the direct result of that kind of sacrifice. That kind of sacrifice can bring us joy that is as deep as any that we can experience on earth. So that's sort of part one of God's plan for us. Part two of God's plan for us, the second part, is the full redemption of us as individuals. The cost of this was the death of his innocent son, Jesus. And nothing can keep us from this. Even if everything in that first part that I told you about fails... If you lose everything, if you die in vain, if your ministry only falls on deaf ears, even if you're one of the children who was, who was killed by Pharaoh, the second part, 
God's full redemption of all people is unstoppable. God wants us, God wants each of you to be in his forever kingdom. And this is always achievable because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's guarantee of that. Let me pray before we start communion. God, you are gracious. Thank you, God, that you have a plan for each of us. Thank you, God, that you know us, that you love us, that you care for us, that you think about us. God, somehow, in your plan that we won't fully know until we see you face to face, you have put us in the place that we are in. God, may we be humbled that you would think of us individually in those placements. God, I would pray for each person here who's in a really hard place. God, for those who are born under the weight of drugs or alcohol, who are born under the weight of discrimination or poverty, oppression, injustice, God, I would pray that you would give an extra measure of faith and courage and perseverance. God, no matter where you chose for us to be born, may we push your kingdom forward. God, I would pray a blessing on each person here. God, that you would give us the strength to move your kingdom here where we live. God, give us the strength to do it in our homes with our siblings, with our parents, with our spouses, with our children. God, may we honor you and how we live. In your name I would pray. Amen.